It is, it is good to be together and uh, good to be out of our igloos um, and, and together this morning. Um, just, again, want to say a special welcome. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet and uh, you're new with us this morning, I hope to get a chance uh, to do that. Um, Christmas is around the corner, and, and so I got a joke for you this morning um, about this, this baby that we'll be uh, celebrating in a little unconventional way. Um, little Jimmy was one of the best students in his... Sunday school class, or as we call it, Kingdom Quest. And uh, one day the teacher uh, asked her students to draw and, and color a picture of uh, something about the baby Jesus. And Jimmy worked and worked, and he came up, here's what he came up with. He came up with a picture of a modern jet airplane with four people inside. Now, the teacher was kind of looking at it as he was developing it, and she couldn't quite figure out what it was. Uh, she couldn't quite figure it out, and so she thought perhaps it had something to do with how Christianity relates to uh, modern times. And so she asked him, Jimmy, that's a, that's a really nice picture there, but, but what is it? Why, that's Joseph and, and Mary and, and baby Jesus on their flight to Egypt, Jimmy answered. Oh, but... Jimmy, there, that's great, but there's actually four people. Uh, who's the fourth one? Oh, 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 that's Pontius. He's the pilot. All right. That's better than I thought it'd do. All right. Good. Now, I don't know exactly if that's exactly how it happened on the flight to Egypt, but uh, every year around this time, in the midst of all the, uh, all the holiday hustle and bustle and running around a shop and get, getting your last-minute things done and those last-minute deals, at some point, whether you're a part of a uh, church or not, you, you're always maybe challenged or encouraged in some way, maybe convicted to remember what Christmas is all about, right? You always hear that every year. Remember the reason for the season. You've all heard that language probably before. And, and it's, it's because it's so easy to get distracted. It's easy to get, to get pulled in so many different directions this time of year that we don't have enough time to just slow down and remember that behind the story of Christmas is this simple yet profound truth that the God of the universe, the, the God that created all things has and has all things became human, became one of us became that tiny baby. And, and I think we all get that, and I think that we all agree that, that we need to be reminded of that. Yes, I understand the reason for the season, that's important. But I want, what I want to talk about this morning is that, and I want to, the reason we're talking about this now, a few weeks before Christmas, is not just to encourage you to, oh, don't forget, remember the reason for the season, and we kind of move on with our lives this holiday season. But I want to challenge us this morning to let that reason change us. To let this story overwhelm you, maybe for the first time or maybe in a brand new way, if you've heard it a thousand times. I pray that as a community this morning, we would not go one more Christmas season without being changed and without knowing this God who became flesh in a deeper way than you ever have. And you'll notice, obviously, that we're taking a slight detour from where we've been. We were just about done with the Bible. We're going through the year of the Bible. We just about got to Revelation, and then John pulls a detour on us. Well, we're going back to the Gospel of John today. We're not going to go back and do it all over again, but um, what I want to do is pull out what is maybe kind of an unfamiliar, what I would consider a Christmas passage, as Val read for us this morning, and that's from John chapter 1. So if you haven't got there yet, uh, head to John chapter 1, and we're going to start 
uh, in the first verse. And of course, like I said, this isn't your typical Christmas passage, but I believe it's going to set a great backdrop for us today uh, for our topic. So um, if you want to make sure you're at John chapter 1, we're going to be digging into that. I think we've got it up on the screen here, so let's read this together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Christmas story, whether we want to believe it or not, doesn't just begin in a manger. I would like to propose to you this morning that the Christmas story begins here, in the beginning, maybe even before creation, maybe before the Genesis in the beginning, it's the John in the beginning. And that light was the life of men. Our story does not begin with a little baby in a manger in Bethlehem. It begins with a God that is so much bigger and so much more marvelous than our minds could ever comprehend. The giver of life, holy and completely other, bigger and more powerful than anything that you could ever imagine set apart before anything else existed. But now, if you can, let's skip ahead to verse 14, the very end of our passage for this morning. And let's read this together. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. The divine became flesh. The author became a character in the story. Has that gotten old for you? When you hear that, the word became flesh, does your heart go, really? Or does it go, yeah, that's from John. We have seen his glory. Glory is not something that we're we're to take lightly. Glory is not something that we can take lightly, especially when it's dealing with the God of the universe. And it is my prayer that in our short time today, that two things will start to happen to us. Number one, that the view that you have of God, this God who became flesh, will be completely blown up all over again. And that our view of God will be expanded in our hearts as we try to comprehend the massiveness and the glory of this God that we worship this morning. And at the same time, number two, that we will leave with a new understanding of the intimacy that he wants to offer every single one of us this Christmas. My hope is that we attempt to paint a picture of the magnitude of getting from John 1, 1, to John 1, 14. How did we go from in the beginning was the word to the word became flesh? And I hope to paint a picture of just maybe a speck of the magnitude of what that means to go those 13 verses. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I pray that when you leave here today, that will ring a little bit differently in your ears. I want to propose today that we view this story of the word becoming flesh, this this tiny baby becoming born in a manger by using the words epic and intimate. Say it with me, epic and intimate. Say it with me louder, epic and intimate. 
or when the epic became intimate. And I believe this morning that there's something that deeply resonates in our souls during Christmas. And it's not doorbusters, and it's not sweet potatoes, and it's not Christmas lights all over your house, and it's not football. There is something deeper that happens to us during Christmas, I believe, that resonates in the very core of our soul. And it's this longing that we have in our lives for things that are epic, and it's this longing that we have in our lives for things that are intimate. And that in an incredibly beautiful way, the Christmas story speaks to both. Now, first of all, it help, might help if we define our terms uh, here a little bit. And for that, we turn to one of my favorite theologians, Mr. Webster, and his book of words, where epic is defined in a few different ways. So let's take a look. First of all, the word epic is usually uh, centered on a hero, centered on a hero in which a series of great achievements or events is narrated in elevated style. They say Homer's Iliad is a great epic poem. Epic can also mean heroic or majestic, something that is impressively great, the epic events of the war. Or finally, something that is unusually great in size or extent, a a crime wave of epic proportions. Now, I would like to propose that the true Christmas story, maybe not the ones that, that, uh, that you think is just all nice and fluffy and, and safe, that, that, that the real true Christmas story gives the word epic an entirely new name, an entirely new definition. You can have your Iliad. You can have your Lord of the Rings or your famous World War II battle or some other great story. I'll take the baby in a manger any day. Why? A great achievement, heroic effort, a majestic work, impressively great. And you might be wondering, John, that's not the Christmas story that I know. The Christmas story that I know is that this nice little baby who doesn't cry at all was just put in a nice little Holiday Inn hotel in a suite with his, with his parents, Mary and Joseph, and a nice angel came and sang Christmas songs on an organ above the hotel. And all the wise men and the shepherds were all there at the same time, which they weren't. That's not the Christmas story that I want to tell you today. And you might be wondering, the Christmas story that I know isn't exactly your definition, John, of epic. In fact, in a few weeks, you're going to take down your little plastic or wooden characters and you're going to put them back in the basement or you're going to wrap them back up in your bubble wrap and you're going to put them back in the box and you're going to put them away until next year. Forgotten about. Nothing necessarily heroic or marvelous about that, right? Furthermore, growing up, this is not the view that I had of Christmas either. I can't think of anything that was epic, that was great or marvelous or heroic about Christmas, especially when I had to be in that darn Christmas play that I hated because there were very few parts that were what I would consider epic as a seven-year-old boy. If I got to maybe uh, kill someone or throw something at someone or destroy someone, now that would be an epic story, right, as a seven-year-old boy. That's the kind of Christmas play that I'm talking about. Well, the thing that sticks out most to me about the Christmas season is indeed those Christmas plays that I was in, very similar to what we were blessed with last week. And as far as I'm concerned, there was only two possible ways that Christmas could be epic according to my understanding of what Christmas was all about. First of all, 
dealing with this Christmas play. The number one way that it could be epic is you get cast in the play as one of the three wise men. Now, let me explain. Now, you might be thinking, John, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you're seven and you have the opportunity to go up in front of your large congregation wearing a bathrobe and a spray-painted Burger King crown, you not only have the most comfortable costume, you have the most luxurious-looking costume. And everybody wanted those three spots, the three wise men. If there could have been 12 wise men, I think they would have had them because so many people wanted those parts. It was a big deal. Definitely comfortable. Yet, if you weren't fortunate enough to land that gig, the next best thing that could make it an epic Christmas for you as a seven-year-old boy at my church would be to somehow arrange yourself during the rehearsals in the angel choir, which you've been stuck in now, if you could somehow arrange yourself in the angel choir to somehow end up standing next to the cutest female angel there was. In my case, it was Megan. And I'm not going to go too far into the story because my wife's sitting over here, but... That was the most epic thing that I could think of because then not only did you get to stand next to them during those long, boring rehearsals, you got to stand next to them during the real deal, the big show. And you had something pretty to look at the whole time. But still, the main goal of Christmas, in my opinion, as a seven-year-old boy, was getting through the story so we could get to the true point of it all, presence, right? Just get me through the story. I've heard it before. And if I can't be a wise man, and if I can't stand next to the cute girl, then, I don't know, we'll just wait again until next year. But I wonder if we've taken this habit of just getting through the Christmas story, because we've heard it so many times, I, I wonder if for many of us that habit hasn't changed. The Christmas story can, can become very familiar if we let it. It can become just a tradition or something that we read for old time's sake, or maybe just something to get through before we get to presents and food and football. But if we could, just for a minute to step back, I want to talk to you about space. I want to talk to you about the heavens and the earth. I want to talk to you about the galaxy. Galaxies far galaxies near. I don't know of many better ways to talk about the epic nature and the expanse of our God, except about talking about that. God has created this expanse that has, that started in the beginning and that continues now. And I want us to take a look at a short video It's very difficult to explain the epic nature of God, but if we can look up at those things that he has created, maybe we can just catch a glimpse of what this Christmas story is all about. And so I want to show you just a short video, and this is um, author and speaker Louis Giglio talking, and he's going to give us a little science lesson about some of the planets. And so as you watch this, I want you to consider the expanse and possibly the epic nature of God. Let's take a look. Maybe this will help a little bit more. This absolutely blew my mind. Just a little journey through our solar system. Everyone knows our planets and sort of how we fit in to the story here. You see really quickly that we're not 
even the biggest deal in our own solar system, but as Earth comes by, you have to know tonight that we are living on a privileged planet. Anyone would tell you we're living at one of the most special places, if not the most special place in all of creation. But Neptune comes by and Saturn and then Jupiter and you're like, okay, we're not all that big, even in our own little cul-de-sac. Just notice the blue dot fading away is not the Earth. That's Neptune. The Earth has gotten too small to see anymore. Sirius comes by. Little plug for satellite radio. Not the biggest star, but the brightest star that we have found so far. Pollux, which we didn't mention. Arcturus. Such a beautifully named one, Regal. But then the one that messed me up. Our third star, Musifi. Musifi's cousin, W. Sifi. And do you know that you couldn't come up here right now with a sharpie and make a mark on the screen that would approximate the size of our sun? You couldn't even do it. I mean, when you look at these and their relative size, we just have to put a little arrow over there that says, if you could put the sun on here, which you can't, it would go somewhere about here. And what we've just seen is just a faint whisper, just a speck of who this God is that we worship. And that maybe all we have to do is look up and we'll see the size and the greatness of this God. You see, when I, when I look at that, when I look at something like that and I try to, to get my mind around the millions and trillions of stars in the galaxy that dwarf any resemblance to our planet, when I think about the fact that you could fit 2.6 trillion Earths inside that star that you saw called Musifi, and that's not even the biggest star, in fact, astronomers have found a star that's even bigger, which you've seen, called Canis Majoris. And I'm not a, uh, very good with linguistics, but Canis Majoris, I think that means the big dog star. And that's appropriate when you think about the fact that, that if the Earth was a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the height of Mount Everest. So set this golf ball on the floor. The height of that, Canis Majoris, would be the height of Mount Everest. It would be a good thing maybe for you to try sometime if you'd like to go hiking. And you can put on your little parka and climb to the top of Mount Everest with your golf ball in your jacket. And when you get to the top, you might be a little bit out of breath. When you get to the top of Mount Everest, take out your golf ball. 
and then feel very, very small. You could fit seven quadrillion, I don't even know what that number is, seven quadrillion Earths inside Canis Majoris. If the Earth were a golf ball, and you tried to fit that many golf balls inside of Canis Majoris, it would take um, that amount of golf balls to cover the entire state of Texas 22 inches deep. Little cute baby Jesus? Little God? Maybe not so much. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see things like that and I hear statistics like that, uh, a shrinking feeling comes over me. And not a bad shrinking feeling, but a a really good shrinking feeling. Uh, And I think about just a glance into the universe of this, this God that he's, this universe that he's created resizes everything in a heartbeat and you realize that christmas is about a god that is that is unrivaled and uncontested this this king of of all might and all power and our glory and there's there's nothing like him we are the small ones not him he is epic in nature turn with me if you could to the book of isaiah isaiah's in the old testament Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to see what the prophet Isaiah has to say about the epic nature of God. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 6. It's kind of in the middle, towards the front of your Bible. The middle front, I guess, if there is such a thing. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And here we find one of the best attempts, at least from a human perspective, to, to describe this, this epic nature of God, the, the, the glory and the majesty of God's. And these are the words of the prophet Isaiah in a vision that he had of God in all his glory. And Isaiah writes this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In Isaiah's attempt to grasp the epic nature of God and the glory of God, all he ends up saying, all that he can possibly make out is, Woe am me. I am ruined. I am ruined. Does that describe your experience with the living God? Could it be that we fail to to grasp the grandness, the the epic nature of Christmas because you and I find it so difficult to be ruined? You and I find it so difficult to be ruined, to be undone 
in a good way by this God. To let ourselves be wrapped up in something that is so much larger, something so much out of this world, that the only thing that, le- that we have left to do, very much like Isaiah, is to worship. Does that describe your experience with the living God? And I propose, I would say that we probably lose the heart of Christmas when we lose our appetite for the greatness of God. The difficulty is, if you're anything like me, we love to be in control, don't we? We love to be in control and to think that somehow the entire universe revolves around us, but as we've seen this morning, we are just a speck, just a glimpse. We love to have it all together, don't we? We love to have everything under control, to think that somehow if this really was the earth, that we could keep it in the palm of our hand and manage our lives, that we could arrange our lives perfectly just the way we want them. We love to be on top of things, whether it's at work or whether it's at home with your family or managing your schedules. We have organized and planned and structured our lives so well with laptops and PDAs and calendars that sync to both. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against PDAs and calendars and computers. I don't know what I would do without them. But is there room in our life to be unraveled a little bit? Is there room in your life for you to be undone by God? Is there room in your life for awe? Is there room in your life for the slower, more intentional times of being in the presence of God? Because I'm afraid that what we've done is that we've not only done that in our lives from day to day with our busy schedules and hopping from one thing to another, but we've also kind of lost our appetite for the greatness of God in our spiritual lives. We work to schedule in worship. We put in our 15 minutes of quiet time at the beginning of the day so that we can get through those three Bible study questions for our small group at night so it doesn't look like we don't know what we're doing. And we go to that small group at night and then we go from seven to eight because that's how we've structured it and anything more would just be a little bit over the top. Heaven forbid that the power and the raging, passionate love of God should overwhelm us a little bit, and heaven forbid it interrupt our God time. In fact, it could be devastating if we were caught with our hands up in worship. It could be devastating if we get caught being wrapped up a little bit too much in the presence of God, that we cry, that we clap, that we dance. How trivial... (laughs) our insecurities become when we remember the one who we're worshiping and that we worship an audience of one. What if we went to our small group or what if we showed up in a circle of our Christian friends with absolutely no agenda whatsoever only to behold the beauty of God? What would that look like? It's a song by a Christian artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman that has these lyrics that I think paint this picture so well, too. It's almost like sometimes I'm playing Game Boy standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. 
like I'm eating candy sitting at a gourmet feast, like I'm waiting in a puddle when I could be swimming in the ocean. What's the deal with me? I think the time has come to wake up and see the glory. My question for you today is, what have you been missing? Because your pride as a strong, independent, put-together Christian adult gets in the way. Have you maybe missed Christmas because you don't want to be undone by it? Maybe because your tradition, your worship, the way that you pray, that your faith has no room for coming undone? Maybe it's time for you to to wake up and, and to breathe, to take in the story, to let yourself go. When we let ourselves become undone, we open ourselves up to experience not only the epic nature of God, but the intimacy of a God who is closer to you this morning than you could ever imagine. The same God that we've spent today experiencing the vastness of is that very same God that through the story of Christmas comes as close to every single one of us as close as his head was to the chest of a teenage girl named Mary. The heart of God is for you. Christmas is the story of a God who is not out of touch with you today simply because he's so massive. But a God that came close enough to put his head to our chests. A God who came close enough to kneel down as a servant and wash our feet so that he could look us in the eyes and tell us exactly how much he loves us. Do you ever wonder if Mary even grasped the magnitude of what was happening when she held her baby for the very first time? The God that created everything has his head on her chest? Epic and intimate. The Christmas story, amidst all the hype and busyness and planning, is about the heart of a God who has moved heaven and earth to be with his children so that we could experience the intimacy that we were created for. The the God who looks at Canis Majoris, the big dog star, and all other galaxies, millions, trillions, quadrillions of miles away, and holds them in the palm of his hand. And that in fact, in the beginning, they were created as if God went, let there be life. Let there be light. The same God this morning that made Canis Majoris is the same God that knows every single thing about you and every single thing that you might be going through today. Why? 
because the same God that holds the galaxy in the palm of his hand, those are the same hands that knit and formed you together. It's a God that became man, who became Jesus, who now looks at you today and says, I don't want to be a figurine at Christmas. I don't want to be a manger scene in front of your lawn. I don't want to be a 15-minute quiet time. I want to live in you. I want to live through you today. I want to be your everything. Colossians 1.27 reminds us, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. Get your head around that. God, this God, living inside of you today. And that's the hope of glory. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Is there room in your heart this morning? Are you willing to come undone? Are you willing to lean in and listen to the heartbeat of God? Don't miss Christmas this year. And if you ever just need a reminder, go out and put on your coat and walk out into the snow and look up at that night sky. And that God lives inside of you. And that is Christmas. Amen.